Hey there, everybody, Mikey. Starting an online business or expanding your physical storefront online has never been easier thanks to Shopify. This global commerce platform supports you at every stage of your business journey. From launching your online shop to managing a million orders, Shopify is there to simplify and accelerate your growth. It's not just about selling products. Shopify helps you manage every aspect of your business with their all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. But that's not all. Shopify helps you convert visitors into customers with the best converting checkout process on the internet, which performs up to 36% better than other platforms. And now a special offer for my listeners. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash timecrafting, all lowercase. Whether you're just starting out or looking to scale up, Shopify is the perfect partner for your business. Are you a small business owner struggling to find the right talent for your team? I've been there and I know how challenging it can be. That's why I recommend LinkedIn Jobs. It's not just any job board. It's a community where you can find professionals who are the perfect fit for your business, many of whom aren't checking other job sites. In fact, 70% of LinkedIn users aren't visiting other leading job sites, making LinkedIn your best bet for finding top talent. With LinkedIn Jobs, you can post your job and reach qualified candidates quickly. 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And now you can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash conversation. That's right, for free. Don't miss out on finding top talent. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash conversation today. Terms and conditions apply. Meal planning is important because it prevents us from being a disappointed wreck when dinner time comes around and we have no clue what to make or even if we have the ingredients to make the meal. It's a time and a money saver, but most importantly, it frees up valuable brain space. Creating a meal plan prepares us for the week to come and gives us peace of mind that we're organized and can feed ourselves and our family. That's why I do it, and that's why Plan to Eat helps me do it. Your subscription includes access to the Plan to Eat website and fully featured mobile apps on iOS and Android. And Plan to Eat gives you the tools to clip and organize recipes from any website, the ones your family loves and that fit your dietary preferences and needs. And you can create a meal plan around your schedule. Then what happens is the Plan to Eat software automatically creates an organized shopping list based on your plan. So sign up for your free trial at plantoeat.com slash timecrafting. That's plantoeat.com forward slash timecrafting. The coupon will be automatically applied to your account and can be used when you're ready to subscribe. It's valid for new customers only. Give Plan to Eat a try today. Here, the host of the Productivities Podcast, and I wanted to share with you uh, before we get into the little disclaimer, uh, first off, there's a couple of sound issues with this episode that kind of go on throughout, so I want to be very clear, because uh, I wasn't very clear for part of that episode. Uh, for some reason, uh, Skype defaulted to my laptop mic, and so that's what you were hearing my side. So you're going to hear me a little bit shallower, and then it turns out that Dr. Hill, for some reason, there's some noise on his side of the call. And not sure what it was, because I don't think he was on his, his microphone, uh, his iPhone, like a, like an iPhone microphone or anything like that. But there was no way to really remove it. So um, for the benefit of, of the content that he shared, and there was a lot of great content, um, we're leaving it. We, we're we're going to post this episode regardless. Uh, my hope is to get Dr. Hill back on the show at some point, which I'd love to be able to do. But I want to put that out there up front so that way you know what you're going to be listening to over the next hour. So there you have it. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. (music) 
Welcome to the Productivities Podcast. I am Mike Vardy, your host, and I have a great conversation this week with Dr. Andrew Hill. He is the head lead neuroscientist over at TrueBrain, which is a, a great company that offers a nootropic solutions for uh, you know, helping you with, with just keeping your brain less foggy and getting more focused work done. I've used uh, their drinks before. I'm looking at getting some of their pills now just because I'm spending a little bit more time diving into the biohacking space. Not, not too deep, but a little bit. Uh, and, and this is a great place for me to start because the brain and how it operates really does interest me. And in this conversation, we dive deep into that stuff. I don't get to talk to a, a you know a neuroscientist very often. So I, I take some of the practical stuff that I talk about and some of the elements of the now year way and other productivity approaches and bring them to uh, Dr. Hill's attention. And we, we have a great conversation. This is a longer episode than usual. So let's just dive right into it. You're not hearing the whole deal, by the way, if you're a Patreon supporter, you hear everything. And I'll talk a bit more about that after, after this discussion that I have with Dr. Andrew Hill here on the Productivityist podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome uh, to the show. Uh, you've heard me off the top talk about this gentleman, and now I get to talk to him. It's not very often I get to talk to people that, like, they, they study the brain to the level. And, 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 and like, I'm not going to say you're a brain surgeon because you're not. In, I'm in definitely sen- not a, yeah, I'm not, not a medical sen- doctor. Not in the sense of the guy that cuts open the brain. But you do have a really great understanding of the brain, don't you, Andrew? I, I mean, I, I would say I do. Hopefully, uh, UCLA thinks I do because they gave me a PhD uh, studying uh, what's called cognitive neuroscience. So I tend to function in the area where the mind and brain uh, overlap, if you will, or mm-hmm. you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a, a reductionist. So for me, cognitive neuroscience is really about how the brain produces the experience of the mind and how we can tune all of those you know, uniquely human aspects of the mind like planning – like uh, you know, inhibiting uh, impulses, um, having abstract thought, having creativity, having focus—these are all very human things to sort of maintain resources at a you know level that is somewhat unnatural, if you will, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, compared to just stimulus response-driven stuff. I mean, it's not natural to stay focused looking at a you know a desk for hours at a time, but we seem to be able to do that uh, with our you know cortex. So, can you can you explain to me one of the things I want to get to right off the top, uh, Andrew? Is is the idea of um, and we I want to talk about True Brain because you're the leading neuroscientist there, and I I got to put it through the pace a little bit. We'll get to that in a, in, a, in a little bit, but I want to talk about the different methods that people can use to kind of move the ball forward and get things done. One of the mm-hmm. first ones I want to talk about is is the Pomodoro technique, which I'm oh, sure great. you're familiar, familiar yeah, with. Yeah, very familiar with it. I, I I used it to get through my dissertation pretty much. Right now now. For those, those, my audience generally will know what the Pomodoro technique is. If you don't, I'll link it in the show notes because I, I mean, it, 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 the explanation of it is it's easy, but it often leads to well, what, what about this? Like, are there rules that you can break and so on and so forth? But really, um, can you kind of dive into the benefits of it? Uh, I mean, I know about uh, like neuroplasticity is one of the things that they talk about. So, why is that so important? Like, why is something like key, moving your brain and not spending an overt amount of time on a particular task and task switching for lack of a better term. Why is that good for the brain and ultimately good for like just overall health really in a lot of respects? Yeah. You know, I'm not sure that task switching is healthy. Ah, uh, right. So there um, there we go. <laughs> I think Pomodoro is very useful for productivity and mm-hmm. getting you uh, to finish things or to get things out the door, so to speak, uh, mentally. But I wouldn't necessarily say that it's the switching that's the benefit. It's, it's this sort of artificial deadline you're imposing that's, you know, 20 minutes away or whatever it is. 
and you're trying to sprint and you've set up this artificial limit on your resources and you, you sort of create this artificial, if you will, um, pressure of getting work done for you know, 20 minutes and taking your five minute break. And it's the, it, the, the switching um, moves you from one mode into the other. When you take your break, you actually stop, you know, stop concentrating, stop focusing. But it lets you sort of evaluate and decide which state you're in. And I think that's the biggest thing it's doing is it's not letting you sit there behind your computer, procrastinate, search Facebook, get distracted, think about what you might want to do, get distracted. Um, it, it, it makes you um, remove the momentum piece of procrastination and replace it with intention. And by doing that, you set up an artificial, you know, okay, for 20 minutes, I have to really sprint. I have to do serious output, and then I will be forced to, to take a break. Um, I think that simply is uh, sort of an, uh, a scaffolding that is mindfulness. It helps you in, manage your internal states and learn to put yourself in one mode for productivity, and then you're forced to take a break, which is a switch. And then, then you sort of feel, uh, okay, I'm not actually working right now. And then when the timer goes off again, you go back into excuse me, back into that mode. And so I think it's more like the permission to choose a state and to aggressively go after being in that state for a few minutes. I think that's what Pomodoro does is scaffolding, you know, okay, be in this state now. Okay, now be in this state. Okay, now be in this state. As opposed to sort of low output procrastination driven productivity, which is a little bit sort of stimulus response uh, based where you're reacting to things around you instead of engaging with the more abstract uh, task or project. Um, I think Pomodoro gets out of that because it forces you to be aware <laughs> of, oh, this is productive time. Oh, this is rest time. Um, and so I'm not sure that the switching itself is uh, necessarily doing all that much for you. You know, It's not going to affect plasticity in any appreciable way, I wouldn't believe. Mm -hmm. um, well... Let me, let me back up a little bit. It, it, it will affect plasticity because everything does. The brain is plastic. It's not like you turn on plasticity with a magic drug or a magic product or a magic you know, uh, lifestyle. Plasticity happens all the time. It's happening right now in your brain. I guarantee it. Uh, too much plasticity is also bad. You can develop all kinds of bizarre things with extra plasticity. Um, there's some disorders that have high, heightened plasticity um, or people that develop parts of their cortex too much and suddenly they lose flexibility in that area of the cortex or increased plasticity can lead to decreased stability in the brain, so increased seizures and a few other things can happen if you're uh, you know, fully plastic and responding to developmental uh, pressures and environmental stimuli constantly, your brain won't be stable. So this is why our brain sort of shuts down plasticity in our childhood a little bit is so that we can start using all the information and learning we've uh, accumulated without always having to have every impulse or thought or stimulus trigger a cascade of other thoughts and stimuli inside our heads. Um, you know, things are really associative. So one fact triggers another fact, triggers another fact. And if your brain is super flexible, that's a pretty noisy experience. Uh, and it might get in the way of sort of productive, focused, goal-oriented uh, output that's only about a couple specific features of your mind not about observing everything in the environment and noticing every new thing that crosses your desk. Um, so I, I think it's more about the ability to, to focus here, the, the, the intention, the, the, the choice in terms of plasticity. You know, it's not so much about the, the changeability um, that you're enhancing in the brain. It's about just using the, the, the changeability that's already going to be there, you know. 
You know, what's, what's interesting as you mentioned this is, is that we talk about like just getting that stuff in front of you, like having the mindset shifts that your brain goes, I need to be in this state, in this state. Um, it, it, this leads to my next question, which is something I come across a lot. And I'm sure you probably, you, you, I would imagine you would, you, you'd have studied this to a point, but a lot of people, what they'll do is they'll say, why do I need to write that down? Why do I need to capture that? I'll remember it. I'll remember it. I'll remember it. What What's wrong with trying to keep everything in your head? Because a lot of people say, "Well, I, I'll remember it." So why Why am I? Yeah. Why am I like if somebody says to me, "Hey, can you go pick up the milk?" Mm-hmm. Why do Why is it important for me to put that down someplace instead of trying to remember it? Because yeah, you know, like so maybe you can. Because again, I'll tell people all the time my thoughts on it. I want to hear yours because yours are backed by you know study sure. and science. So, so you're really, you know, tapping into the definitions or the resources of both short-term memory and working memory. And these are not exactly the same thing. Uh, you know, old psych texts and old psych professors will think they're the same thing, but we've discovered now that they're not exactly the same thing. Uh, short-term memory appears to be this more passive sort of memory trace. So you walk across town or something and you have some experiences. You don't necessarily try to remember them, but after you arrive at your location, you can think back to the past half an hour, what happened, what, what, you, what you saw, what you felt. Um, that's short-term memory, the sort of trace of experience that lingers for a little bit and then gradually gets weaker and weaker. And things that show up often in your short-term memory are learned, sort of you know, passively. You, you, you learn some information. Um, working memory is the active scratch pad of the brain. Sort of RAM in your computer, the more working memory you have, the more applications you can have open, so to speak, the more things you can be thinking about or details you can lodge in your active working space uh, of your memory. But that's not a, a limitless, so to speak, uh, 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 resource. It's, it's limited. Human working memory appears to be right around seven items. Um, and there's some variability across individuals, of course, like everything. Uh, the natural, normal human range appears to be uh, seven items plus or minus two. So five to nine discrete chunks of information in your active working mind at any one time. And so if the only thing you have to remember is, let me go to the store and buy milk, you probably don't need to write it down. But if you're going to the store to buy milk, bread, eggs, cheese, you know, paracetam, choline, uh, suddenly you're up around six, seven, eight items and you're going to forget something. Uh, that, that eighth item that creeps in on average kicks out other items. So it's difficult to remember more than those seven items at any one time and new information is sort of uh, – retroactively interfering with or prospectively interfering with new, with old information so it knocks things out or masks things you thought you were paying attention to and replaces it with new information. So stuff just gets edged off the shelf. You have a limited shelf space for uh, what you can be paying attention to or actively processing. And unfortunately, working memory, or fortunately, but working memory is uh, used in almost everything you experience, Mike. So Focus, abstract thought, planning, remembering, you know, pulling things out of memory as well as solving problems in the moment. All those things require that, that RAM, that working memory scratch pad. And as working memory changes, your abilities change. Uh, working memory is the most highly correlated, measurable resource with things like intelligence. Um, it's, it's incredibly bound to, the, to human experience. And uh, failures of working memory or reduction of working memory are almost always sort of pathological. You see issues with attention, issues with memory, you know, uh, in this case, recall memory. Um, so working memory appears to be a sort of magical resource that is uh, the holy grail of biohackers and cognitive researchers. Um, 
Unfortunately, the, the vast majority of research that's been published suggests that working memory is not changeable. It is a fixed resource uh, per individual. Now, there are some uh, studies out there that look at cognitive training applications, and a few of these uh, stretch, if you will, working memory, exercise working memory. And the only one that has any sort of evidence base behind it, as far as I know, in terms of having a positive effect on memory, on, on working memory, is the dual end back. It's a, you know, a, a test to sort of load up traces of attention in time where you're paying attention typically to two different modalities, like a spoken letter and um, the position on a tic-tac-toe grid might be two things you're watching in a classic end back. And the dual end back would have these both stimuli streams running at once, and then you're trying to pay attention to what happened you know, more than one trial ago. So there's a lag in time. That's the memory trace. And the more there's a lag in time, the more number of different modalities of stimuli you're trying to pay attention to, the harder things get. And that does appear to load up this 7 plus or minus 2 resource we have. And about half the studies out there that look at uh, working memory with a dual end back show that there's some slight improvement of the range. And about half the studies out there fail to find any change in working memory with the dual end back. So cognitive training apps in general are a waste of money and vaporware. They do not do what they say they do. They're fun. They're enjoyable. You can gamify it and play with your friends. But you're not going to get resources within a cognitive training environment, like an application, that will transfer out of that environment to a real-life resource, with the possible exception of dual end back, which has as much evidence for it as against it for making change. But it's, it's the best case. Everything else that's been tested roundly fails to find skill transfer out of the training environment. So uh, if, if you're interested in stretching or working memory, um, the only sort of way we think that it might happen that you have access to is something like a dual end back. Now, that's the sort of modern biohacker approach. There's a very classic approach for affecting working memory, and that would be meditation or mindfulness. That does appear to have some impact on uh, working memory. It's not clear if it's changing the, the, the core resource or if you're changing the input-output into the stage, if you will, the, the, the sort of loading stage of working memory. And if there's less busyness, less stimulus bouncing around inside your head, if things are quieter and less, you know, less uh, streams of information then your working memory will work better because it's got fewer things to interfere with what's in working memory, fewer distractions internally. Um, so it's not clear if mindfulness or meditation works on working memory because it improves the actual core resource or if it simply makes your brain work more efficiently and the working memory you have is therefore uh, more effective. Um, it does look like meditation practices build frontal cortex. They actually build a fat brain. And... If you're someone who uh, is later in life, the, the amount of meditation you have done in your life is inversely related to loss of cortex in normal aging. So as we get older, you know, 50, 60, 70 years old, our cortex, the part of the brain that we think with and process information with, et cetera, um, starts to become thinner as you lose cells, as connections sort of get pruned between cells, the cells die off. Um, your, uh, the speed of your brain slows down, your attention reduces, your self-control can be re a little reduced sometimes. Uh, this is all a sort of a, a frontal function, judgment, a body awareness. These are all frontal functions of the brain. And these are classic things that start to uh, uh, become impaired in later aging unless you've had a meditation practice. And if you have, 
uh, significant meditation practice daily or you know several times a week for many many years, you are spared the cortical thinning that leads to like frail body awareness and um, issues with attention, issues with sleep, issues with concentration. These are all pretty classic things that are not actually uh, pathological. I mean, it's not pathological to have your memory become a little bit less uh, uh, easily accessed when you're older. Or your brain's reaction times, the, the speed of your alpha waves, which are 10 hertz, 10 cycles per second in adults, starts to slow down in elders. In, in children, it's slow as the brain uh, wraps itself in insulation. And then right around 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, your brain is at its sort of adult speed. And alpha is running at 10 hertz, and all the other brain waves are at their stable speed. And then around 55 to 65, there's this sort of slow drop off. And by the time you're 70 or 80, your brain is back to being the same slower speed it was when you were a kid. Um, and that's when sluggish cognitive tempo shows up. And I'm guessing, I don't know if this is true, but I'm guessing this is why um, there's this sort of uh, trope of elders driving really slowly. Mm. You know, like, why mm -hmm. is this person in front of me driving really slowly? Oh, they're really old. Uh, my guess is because reaction time and cognitive processing has decreased uh, a fair amount. And that's leading to an overall slower interaction with the world. But those elders probably don't know they're responding more slowly because the index frequency, the core processing frequencies of the brain, have also slowed down. So everything just might be a little bit slower and feel uh, like it's the same. So their experience, their experience is slower, therefore everything yeah, their is slower. Yeah, thoughts run slower, so yeah. their slower behavior feels natural is my guess. It's like a, it's like a, a, a brand new uh, computer versus a, a, a three-year-old computer. The three-year-old computer has no no understanding that it's it's, right. it's it's not brand new it's just running as as it would and and the you know the newer computers going how come you know, when you're looking at those two computers you're like how come the th you know the three-year-old is running slow right. because it's older you know yes, it doesn't have exactly. so i mean ultimately if you get things out of your head if you mm -hmm. capture things so if you're using a task app or you're writing yep. using a day planner if you free your mind from that stuff Yes, That's, close the loop. It's generally going to help your brain function better, both the working memory and, and you know both both sides of it, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah, we have a limited amount of resources we can spend at any one moment in time, um, and working memory is the active use of that resource, a scratch pad. But you you you, you cannot worry about everything at once. You can't you know process every bit of information at once, and stuff falls out. There's a limited sort of desk, uh, desktop area that we can use for active processing. And if we try to do too much, even if we're able to do it, able to you know, manage the information flow, not get burdened by too much stimulus, even just making decisions again and again and again throughout the day, eventually you stop making decisions well. You become fatigued at the act of using your brain to decide. It's called decision fatigue, oddly enough. And this is why, you know, after shopping all day long, you know, for, for Christmas presents for your kids, you're just kind of worn out. You see something that looks okay, just grab it. And then you get home and you're like, why did I buy this toy for my kid? That wasn't a great decision. It's that decision you make when you're just tired of making decisions. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the like going grocery shopping at the end of the day when you're already hungry and can't deal with it. You just end up with a cart full of stuff that looks good. But or, you go to, or you go to McDonald's because, you know, you don't want to cook dinner and you've never – you just said, all right, that's fine. Let's go right. eat you it. You have a fridge full of food and yeah. you're, you can make dinner but you just can't deal with thinking about all the different things you got to put together and you've been, you know, making decisions all day long at the office and, you know, the decision of let me call the pizza delivery guy is an easier decision than the 19 steps involved in preparing a meal or something. Um, yeah, so decision fatigue is actually pretty uh, critical to manage and this goes towards the idea of managing your own uh, output. 
throughout the whole day. Your, your, your engagement level or your stress level is actually fairly critical to pay attention to. And I don't mean to keep your stress low. That's actually not productivity enhancing. No stress is uh, a poor way to be productive. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm also a gerontologist. I study aging and there's a concept in gerontology called environmental press. And the degree to which the environment is challenging and requires you to rise to meet those challenges is actually a predictor of a healthy engagement with the environment and long-term brain health. If the environment becomes non-challenging, if the environmental pressure or press is removed, you age faster, you die faster. And you deteriorate significantly faster late in life. So it's very important to stay engaged, to keep some of the pressure on long term. Um, but day to day, you, you need to think more about sort of the sweet spot of stress. Too little stress, you're bored, you don't want to be at work, you're you know, surfing the web. Uh, too much stress and you're overwhelmed. You can't pay attention to all the things that are clamoring for your you know, limited resources. But right in the middle, just enough stress amps up your resources so you have more of them. Your reaction time is better. Your focus is better. Your ability to, to ignore distractors is better. Your ability to sort of be in flow state and pull information out of your brain is better with a certain amount of stress. This is the uh, inverted U-curve um, of performance versus arousal. It's called the Yerkes-Dodgson law for simple tasks, things that are not uh, horrible. Um, increased arousal means better performance. So simply pressing a button or you know, noticing a very simple thing, uh, more stress actually is better performance. But complex tasks, things that actually take a lot of effort, once you get over a certain amount of stress, the performance starts to degrade as stress goes up further. So you, know, you might be someone uh, who goes to work and spends the whole day sort of in full catastrophe mode, leaves work and collapses. And you may think that's a great way to work, but unfortunately it's not. You should find that place where it's easy to be in a high productive mode. If being highly productive feels stressful, you're probably not managing either the organizational sort of scaffolding, meaning task lists and you know, things like that, or you are just taking on too much and you might need to mediate the stress you're under. Um, you, you mentioned getting things out of your head, Mike, and mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of uh, David Allen's G GTD, getting yep. things... And, and he would say that that's actually the, the, the primary benefit of a task uh, management app or system is simply so you aren't leaving little energy uh, running in the back of your mind about this task I have to do and that thing I have to do and this person that needs to call back and that person that wants something from me. You know, if you've got 5, 10, or 15 of those things running in the back of your head, that gets pretty exhausting pretty quickly. Right. And it's really difficult to engage with full attention and be present with any other task that you're presented with, if there's this sort of you know litany of clamoring, uh, unresolved uh, tasks in the back of your head, and I think uh, David Allen calls this uh, the open loop. Yeah. Um, and I think closing these loops, be it you know using a GTD app or a bunch of index cards or just keeping a simple task list on your phone or whatever it is, allows you to go, okay, yep, it's in the phone, it's in the it's on the the, the scrap of paper, it's on the index cards. I don't need to be ruminating or perseverating about this thing. And I think that's a huge uh, issue that folks that aren't as productive as they would like to be can make change. It's a very easy thing to do to start writing everything down. And you're right. People often don't know. Well, I don't have a problem remembering stuff. Why should I write things down? It's not so you don't have to rem – it's not so you'll remember it. It's so you don't have to think about it. Yeah. 
So you have to burn cycles of your brain power thinking about things that aren't going to be done right now. It's, it's probably the reason that some people, and I, I mentioned this to people before, uh, it's, it's the reason where if you're writing an email and you knew you had to buy milk and in the middle of that email, all of a sudden buy milk shows up and, and you're like, why did I put that there? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, exactly. It, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot more I want to cover because you've, you've brought up a bunch of stuff. One of the things that, that I mean, I'm a, I mean, I've, I was an ardent follower of GTD. I've kind of got my own methodology that I, that I kind of follow now. But one of the things that I, I find, and, and maybe you can, again, there's probably, there's going to be some, some supporting materials that I'm sure you can share, is that a lot of people tend to work by project. They say, okay, I'm going to work on this project and this project. Whereas in the GTD world, they also give you the capability to work by context, right? I, I like to refer yeah. to, context is harder, I think, for people to wrap their heads around sometimes. So, I mean, mode would be, like we talked yeah. about modality. Um, what are the, I mean... What are the benefits of – I'm not going to say what are the benefits between working by project and working by mode because there are – I mean those are pretty getting dry. But, but having the ability to look at your list, to look at the things that you have to do and giving your brain about three or four different ways to attack it, how mm-hmm. important is that or is, are there benefits to that? You know, I, the short answer is I, I don't know. Um, I, I do think you're right that project or sorry, context-based work is difficult to do um, without some scaffolding, without some technology tools that sort of say, oh, Andrew, you're at home now. Here's your home task list. Oh, you're at the office. Here's your office task list. Oh, you're driving between home and the office. Here's your stop at the store task list. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's useful with technology, but the amount of sort of shuffling of tasks into different lists would be untenable, you know, pen and paper. Right. Um, and so I don't think it's really doable, just, you know, basic task list style. Um, however, you know, one of the things that I really like about uh, uh, these sort of GTD and other similar types of uh, systems is they also emphasize the idea of the next action, the, the mm-hmm. thing that is actually the blocker or the thing you have to do in a giant project. And as someone who's had you know, a lifetime of being a little bit ADHD and I've, you know, I've been a relatively high performer in my life, I've you know, started many companies, I have a PhD, some of those things are big amorphous multi-stage tasks that are poorly defined. And those big amorphous multi-stage tasks that are poorly defined are the hardest thing to engage with if you have any sort of productivity. It's incredibly easy to get you know, caught in the minutia or distracted or just resist the project because you aren't sure what to, you know, where to engage with it. Would it also be because doing more is quantitative and it's easy for our brain to kind of say, okay, there's, I've just done 40 things than doing the one or two or three yep. big things? Absolutely. And, and do effort, you know, being uh, cognitive, doing things feels like you're productive. But if I spent, you know, six hours uh, on eBay trying to find rare guitars, I got something done. But I didn't write my dis- dissertation or, you know, pay my company's taxes or whatever. But my brain doesn't know that one was more important, really. It just knows, oh, good for you, Andrew. You just worked for six hours. Okay, great. You can now relax and not have to work on stuff. And that feeling of, oh, I just spent all this effort, but I didn't get anything done is very undermining. We don't, we don't tend to trust our ability to engage our minds and get where we want to go if whenever we sit down to work, we spin our wheels. We get you know, distracted in all the things that aren't effortfully uh, you know, productive, so to speak. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about scheduling and the calendar and scheduling mm-hmm. your day because there's a great uh, there's there's two camps on this and I mean again if you're looking at the GTD approach or, or, or common task management approach you know the calendar is meant for date specific appointments where there's this understanding that this has to happen at this time because if it doesn't it doesn't happen mm-hmm. versus the now ever increasingly unpopular. Um, 
the most popular performers or the high achievers don't have a to-do list. They work by their calendar. If it doesn't get scheduled, it doesn't get done. Yeah. Um, what kind of impact – I'll be up front. I'm not a big believer in the let's hyper-schedule your day and fill all time mm-hmm. blocks up because I believe that it's not just a matter of, okay, it's 9 o'clock. It's time for me to work on this email because – sometimes you a don't feel like it number two you yep. don't always have your so how what are your what are your thoughts on that on those two camps so to speak my thought is um that the best situation is probably somewhere in the middle and it has to be tailored to the individual right there are certain types of productivity that are impossible to do in any real way without a rigorous schedule i mean writing is one good example um having been an academic for many years i will tell you that it's endemic that academics are the most ridiculously low productive people i've ever met in my life <laughs> they spend all of their time stressing about the grants they haven't written or the papers they need to submit or the courses they need to pre- prepare and when they actually do the work i mean this is this is true of tenure track faculty half of them are like this easily all of their time is spent stressing and procrastinating and then they do the work poorly and last minute yeah and these are some of the highest you know, intellectuals, theoretically, in our, in our society. They are not good at managing their work. Now, the other type of academic who is the sort of shining scientist type, I've noticed these guys come in uh, you know, 8 a.m. or these women come in at 8 a.m., 9 a.m., and they typically spend two hours. The first two hours of the day, they're writing, and that's all they're doing. They're not answering emails. They aren't talking to students. So for things like that, you know, incredibly nuanced, high-output uh, tasks that take a lot of your resources, memory, you know, judgment, creative thought, scientific sort of rigor. For things like that, you know, writing, um, be it creative or, or uh, rigorous, I would say um, it's really a trap to wait for inspiration, to wait till you feel like doing something, like writing. Yeah, Pressfield talks about this. If you wait for the muse to come, she's never going to show up. Yeah, you know, you have to drag her kicking and streaming into your, into your apartment, sit around on the couch and like, you know, make her stay there. That's why Julie Cameron's The Morning Pages is so effective for a lot of writers because at least mm-hmm. they sit down and they just spend the time. It doesn't matter what, or free writing, which I, I can't remember who talked about that. I want to say it's uh, Yeah, old concept. You know, you, but, you, but there's, there's that capability there. So, it, and it's funny because, um, uh, you know, I know, and I'm a writer, and I know that if I don't sit down and say, okay, I'm going to spend the next two hours writing whether I want to or not, it, it, and I'm a productive guy, it, my brain will try to find other things to do. Mm-hmm. It will say, well, the writing – I don't feel like writing right now. But the thing is, is that – you know, and I, I often talk to people about this when it comes to the movie Comedian. You know, Like Jerry Seinfeld in the movie Comedian says, everything he sees, he finds the funny in. Comedians – I mean when I was doing comedy, it was the same thing. If I looked at a situation, I'd go, how, how is that funny? How can I make that funny? The old mm-hmm, Seinfeld mm-hmm. bit where he said you know, he walked into the, the, the bathroom on the airplane and saw a razor blade disposal unit. And his first thought wasn't, oh, well, that's probably because somebody may need to change the cartridge and put a fresh cartridge on. No, his thought was, who's shaving so much on the plane that they're going for razor blades? Right. Right. And so every time that I look at something now, and maybe because I was wired comedically, and maybe that's something, I mean, you would know better than I would, I guess, in, in a manner of speaking scientifically. But I mean, I look at something like I watched The Flash the other night, and and uh, I mean, dialogue weaknesses aside, the father said, sometimes you need to slow down so that you can get back to where you really want to be. And I'm like, how do I use that in time management? Like immediately yeah. my brain went there, even though my brain wasn't actively seeking it. So if yep. you sit in this writing mode and, you know, and I just start writing those things, I mean, there's enough material out there that it can happen, but you're right. So many people just, they, they wait for that to strike. They procrastinate and, and sometimes they feel that they have permission to because it's a creative endeavor and that's right. just not the case. 
Yeah, and writing is one of these things. It is actually not creative. It is brute force. Mm-hmm. You know, you 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 get good at it because you have skills, because you edit, because you're nuanced, because you're a good writer. But the act of writing is not creative. The act of, of the first draft has very little creativity. <laughs> it's it's closer to a vomiting up of content. It should yeah. be anyways. It should, um, it's really important, I, I believe, in terms of high output productivity to um, silence the sensor in the first couple of iterations of your output. Mm-hmm. Completely shut down judgment and don't even think about quality. Think about output, large volume outputs. When I'm, when I'm writing... I mean, I'm a, I'm a pretty good writer, but I write just, you know, I just dump pages of random notes and thoughts and outlines onto a piece of paper, and then I go back through and, and finesse. Um, and for things that are complicated, I don't even start on paper now. I use, like, mind maps and things yeah. to, uh, to organize my thoughts because otherwise, when I'm writing these more sort of nuanced and, and very complicated or complex topics, aspects of the topics are bumping up against my, you know, the, the things that I'm trying to write. And I'm getting confused about what I want to say next and how to frame this idea and how to build up some, you know, some information. And so for me, um, when I find that happening, I stop writing and drop back to outlining, mind mapping, et cetera. But the, oh, you know, I, I was not very good at sort of sitting down for two hours a day and writing my dissertation. It took me an extra year, so to speak, to do my, my dissertation because I was you know, worrying about teaching this class or doing this new experiment or all these other things that seemed like they were higher priority mm-hmm. because they were defined and they were immediate, but they weren't. I mean, I would have saved, you know, 50 grand or something by finishing UCLA a year early. Um, but when I finally sat down and wrote my dissertation and got it done, I, you know, the whole thing was done start to finish in three months. Is, is that the, and I mean, I've seen some, I mean, I've obviously done a little bit of, of looking into the, the, what the brain does, because again, it's a, <laughs> it's, 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 it's very, very compelling to me, but is that the, the war when you're sitting there and you're saying, you know, I got to do this, this full focused work. Is that the battle between like the limbic and the cortical brain? Would that be accurate if saying something like that? Or is that too, no, is that, is that, is that too no. far? Am, am I, am I thinking too yeah, like, you don't really think with your limbic. Like, I mean, you don't really are... think with your limbic system. Limbic system is pretty is, is subcortical, right? And you're you're pretty much only thinking with the cortex, okay. uh, the top, you know, bark of the brain. Because um, what's the fight or flight? Like, I mean, I remember seeing someone speak, and they said that the the there's one part of part of the brain where it it it's the three F's. Yeah, um, the four F's actually. <laughs> the hypothalamus is the four F's: right. uh, feeding, fleeing, fighting, and, and the sex. And, and sex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always tell my when I'm teaching Psych 10 in, at UCLA, I, I pause and you know, fe- f- fleeing, feeding, fighting, and sex, and the, and the freshmen look at me for a second, confused, and then I'll burst out laughing and never forget the four Fs. Um, that's the hypothalamus. It's it's about motivated behaviors, reducing drives for thirst, hunger, it's the lizard, whatever. It's it's what some people call the lizard brain, right? Yeah, that's that, that's that's down in, deep in the brain there. Right. Um, but you're really thinking with the cortex, the top stuff, and there's to some extent there's some laterality, you know, left versus right hemisphere. Um, this is different across individuals, mm-hmm. but the, the right hemisphere is more abstract, more out of the box. Left hemisphere is more linear, more language bound. Um, to some extent, it's that. It's seeing the big picture, the macro versus the micro. It's the abstract versus the linear. It's, it's, it's some of those things. And we do have um, at least two completely separate attention systems in our brain that have to come together in the moment of behavior to produce a consistent whole experience of performance and attention. And your you know, uh, uh, two halves of your brain or your two cortices may be fighting a little bit. One wants to be more artistic. One wants to be more linear. Um, one's trying to uh, organize words. One's trying to think about concepts. 
um, those should come together cleanly and produce a unified experience of thought and attention. But they don't always work that way. You know, they don't always work perfectly together, and you do sort of fight yourself a little bit. It's funny. One of the things that uh, you talked about gamification earlier, and, and there's this task application called Todoist. I'm sure, you've sure, I'm sure you've seen other task management and time management uh, gamification, like the email game or, or Habit RPG or all these ones that say you, every time you do this, you get rewards. What mm-hmm. I find, like, what the danger I think with some of that stuff is that you give yourself low hanging fruit so you can increase your score. So yeah. instead of like, is that, do you find, I mean, gamification is a big thing right now, obviously, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. How, is it, is it something that, you know, and I, I, I want to dive into the nootropics here in a minute. Is there a danger in gamification because that becomes the, the goal is to win as opposed to why the maybe. gamification is there in the first place? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know what the research says, but my experience of doing these sorts of things you know, more rigorously gamified things or even things that are just sort of little self-deception like Pomodoro to help you get out of your own mm-hmm. way. Yep. All those things to me, um, you know, I understand why I'm doing them and I engage with them. But once they start working, it doesn't matter. Once they start working and I'm in productive mode, I don't need to keep engaging with the tool. I don't, you know, like the second time Pomodoro goes off, I might ignore it and keep working for two hours straight. Right. Which I know is not, you know, legitimate in the Pomodoro way of doing things. But for me, it's not so much about needing the, the hand-holding every 20 minutes. It's about the initial push first thing in the morning or when the stuff bothering me that I, that I can't get out of my head. The productivity gamification helps me get moving. It helps the momentum start. It's, it's like Pavlock, the thing we were talking about before we started yeah. recording. But like how I've got the Pavlock now and, and you know the first two nights, uh, yet the, I tested it and the shock worked. And then the third day, I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to put this thing on. I'm I just want to get out of bed so I don't get shocked. <laughs> Yeah, now this is not an aversive or punishment thing for me, but no. <laughs> but yes, uh, I, I sort of view that. Okay, you know, now I'm now I'm uh, you know six pages into a document, and the the Pomodoro alarm has gone off. Well, I don't feel bad about shutting it off and keeping you know my 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 output going for another hour. That's fine. I think there's nothing wrong with that. To be fair, you have the freedom to do that too. So not everybody does. Everybody has. Sure. Some people do have to say, okay, I only have 25 minutes to do that. I mean, I want it. But that to me is, is okay, if you're going to do that, like say you have to work on a report, but you have a bunch of other responsibilities. You have, and this is another reason why the Pomodoro can work really well, is you say, if someone says, um, I need you to do this, uh, you don't have time to do focus work, everybody can give somebody 25 minutes of focused work like right. there's and nothing is, that that's that there's no no reason we have this 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 we we're, this fear of missing out this urgency that, that everything's an emergency and and when we prioritize everything or we make everything urgent then nothing important can really get done yeah totally and and i mean you're absolutely right sometimes i do have freedom to keep working uh, i just want to do two things day to day one is working with clients in a neurofeedback and, and meditation center and that's client-based work hour after hour i'm engaging with one person's you know, needs and challenges and talking about their brain and training their brain. But then, you know, early in the morning and late at night, I'm sitting at my computer writing and doing other sort of, you know, more amorphous open-ended tasks. And I certainly am not doing open-ended Pomodoro, you know, stuff midday. If I have to uh, be computer-bound productive, I will use little, okay, 20-minute sprints. And this is mm. like something that I learned from Chris uh, Thompson at True Brain when I started working with those guys a few years ago as we were first designing the first uh, True Brain uh, blend, you know, Chris had this, he pulled his phone up and told Siri, you know, 20-minute timer. And, and he's all about this sort of like, 
you know, business productivity hacking. Mm-hmm. And so I learned from Chris that, you know, this is what something we would all do. We'd all stop talking and do our 20 minute sprints and come back to talk about what we accomplished, you know, repeatedly. And I, I got a lot of great, uh, you know, education from him. He came you know, Chris is a, a Duke MBA and he's high uh, powered in this sort of, you know, business startup world. And this productivity uh, hacking, if you will, you know, me as a sort of newish neuroscientist, I hadn't worked in a team where the team was doing this as a way of, you know, switching gears into productivity and then not necessarily having to lock everyone up in an office so we couldn't talk, but also not having to sort of be in an open office plan where we got nothing done. This was a way of getting around that. Everyone going to focus mode for, you know, 20-minute sprints and then stop and, you know, re, re, uh, re-engage. Let's talk about True Brain for a little bit. Sure. Um, so, nootropics. Yeah. How do they promote focus? Because a lot of people have heard the term, they've seen mm-hmm. it, you know, but why? Why do they work and, ha- and, and, and why, first off, what, for, uh, I want to know about neurotropics in particular and then why True Brain is, yeah. uh, w- w- what True Brain can do for people. So let, let's just start with the definition. Nootropics, um, broadly defined and by the original definition, would, set, would be uh, things that improve cognition, meaning focus, attention, et cetera, uh, memory, Without side effects, and that point I want to emphasize, without side effects, without risk, without addiction, without tolerance, uh, these are very critical things when you're trying to hack performance. If you're trying to fix a problem, you've got ADHD, well then taking a drug that has some side effects or you have major depression or sleep issues if you really need to, a drug might be the answer. If there's significant impairment in your life, you're trying to get around. But if you're trying to just get a little more productivity or get out of your own way or squeeze an extra 10% of you know, effort out of your day, then you have to really be cautious about experimenting with things that may have side effects. And I would say that even something like caffeine does not rise to the criteria of a true nootropic because it has cardiovascular side effects, it suppresses uh, appetite, it is habit-forming, you know, it's addictive. Um, the side effects of caffeine are fairly manageable, but it does have side effects. And this is why I'm, you know, I have sort of an axe to grind with the, the, the word nootropic as it's used in marketing circles, because everyone is, who's doing brain or smart enhancement things is using this word now. And a lot of these compounds are drugs with serious side effects. Um, not necessarily uh, all that uh, prevalent side effects, but when they occur, a lot of these new, you know, things that people are calling nootropics can, can kill you. You know, psychostimulants and modafinil and other kind of, you know, fairly serious drugs out there. A lot of Alzheimer's drugs are being used now by self-hackers for, for biohacking. Uh, these are not nootropics. These are drugs. These are special smart drugs maybe and cognitive enhancers maybe, but not nootropics, not strictly speaking nootropics. And this is actually, it sort of goes into your question about why, you know, True Brain. When I was um, in the middle of my dissertation uh, at this point five or six years ago, um, and I was, I was teaching, you know, full time. I was doing research in a lab. I was trying to write. I was, uh, it was very difficult to be productive with all of these different demands in my time. Uh, and of course I was, you know, a grad student without, without a lot of supervision. So I was having to be my own, uh, productivityist. Um, and, uh, it was just not that successful. I was having a hard time getting out of my own way and, you know, a decade before I had taken psychostimulants uh, with this prescription with some success. I tried a, you know, six months or something. And so I thought, okay, that's what I need. Let me go back and get some uh, amphetamines. And um, after jumping through hoops at this, you know, student psych services, because they don't like to give out amphetamines, it turns out, <laughs> uh, I got some. I got some dextroamphetamine, which is the one that had worked for me before. Fairly significantly strong amphetamine and very clean uh, amphetamine, pure amphetamine. And 
I couldn't handle it. You know, heart issues, blood pressure issues, totally suppressed my appetite. And for whatever reason, my, my liver being a decade older means I couldn't tolerate the side effects of the drug. It was just too much. So I was hoping to get a little bit of support from a psychostimulant. I couldn't. So my next stop was, well, let me figure out what these nootropic things are. And I was in the middle of a class at the time on psychopharmacology and pharmacodynamic, uh, pharmacodynamics. And I you know, sort of understood things like neurotransmitters and receptors and binding sites and all kinds of things like that. And trying to figure out which nootropics were the ones that were safe, that were effective, where I should start, what was the best thing to try was bewildering. And I had a, you know, three and a half years of a PhD in neuroscience under my belt by then. And it was still bewildering, this sort of proliferation of research chemicals with lots of strings of letters and numbers in their name and, you know, random things that used to be drugs in other countries that are now getting imported into this country and uh, aging drugs in this country being used off-label and supplements and, co and other compounds, amino acids. It was really bewildering. And so I spent some time doing a bunch of research and reading articles and looking at the history and eventually assembled uh, through a lot of trial and error, including self-experimentation, assembled what uh, eventually became the TrueBrain sort of 1.0 stack. But this was a couple of years before TrueBrain. Um, and for those couple of years as I finished off my, my PhD, the experience was, you know, I got a lot of great nootropic support. My stress was down. My sleep was up. I was able to shift into productive modes more easily. Um, but the whole time, you know, it was friends and family saying, oh, nootropics, what should I take? And I would sort of, you know, write down a list of seven or eight ingredients and half the time they would come back and say, I can't find these things. Where should I get them? And, you know, after years of that, um, I sort of met Chris Thompson of True Brain and we, uh, produced the True Brain 1.0 blend out of my, at the time, my, my, my current stack. And, and even now, TrueBrain sort of 2.0, the capsule version, um, is still fairly similar to my original uh, blend, although we spent a lot of time with our other, other neuroscientists and neuroengineers and, and uh, people refining the ingredients, getting different versions or better versions of the ingredients. And then uh, our customer base uh, started asking for different things. They, they really wanted a food or a drink-based version. And so TrueBrain last October, about just over a year ago, um, came out with a drink called the Think Drink, little one-ounce uh, you know, energy drink style things, although they're not energy drinks. They're not really relying on the things that a, you know, an energy drink would rely on for the effect. Um, it's not a caffeine-heavy product. It's not a B vitamin sort of driven product. It's uh, nootropics, just like regular old you know, True Brain. It's things like paracetam and choline, magnesium, tyrosine. And so this gets back into your question about what are nootropics. Um, some of these compounds are simply amino acids or minerals or things we already take as supplements. You know, it's good to take a choline source uh, through supplementation, um, even if you're eating lots of eggs and things which contain choline. But some forms of choline supplementation don't really get into the brain. And so knowing which form has good blood-brain barrier penetrance is useful. Um, when you start adding in additional compounds, uh, you know, true brain contains magnesium, which helps cells both fire more if they have too few electrolytes and it helps you calm down if you're being stressed out. So it's buffering both under and over activation, um, by the same, uh, uh, in the same direction, we include what's called L-theanine in true brain. L-theanine is a 
naturally occurring compound found in green tea or actually tea leaves in general and it's very calming. It releases GABA in the brain. And the combination of caffeine and L-theanine is a beautiful, slightly stimulating, smooth push as opposed to a jittery state with caffeine alone. Um, and so over time, we've refined the ingredient blend in True Brain to what we think is, uh, you know, a, so the best case, the best True Brain or the, the best nootropic stack or blend for people to try. Um, but a lot of the reason I think it's the best is because we have exhaustively looked at everything out there and have curated or selected ingredients that have decades of safety and efficacy. Um, the other thing that we think uh, where True Brain is sort of rising above the rest of the pack is we don't do any of the sneaky things that supplement manufacturers have done historically. We don't hide the amounts of ingredients. So we tell you exactly what's in it and the amounts of each ingredient. I, I, I would argue if you ever see proprietary blend on a product, there's better options. You don't need to, you know, no one needs to obscure what you're putting in your body from you. And if they are, there's probably a reason that you don't like. Like they're actually putting very much of the stuff in there or, you know, whatever. Um, so we disclose the amount of all the ingredients. We use a large amount of ingredients. We only use seven or eight ingredients in the product, not, you know, 20,000 little tiny amounts of things. Um, and uh, we don't pick anything that is like risky. So there are newer research chemicals and smart drugs and things that legally True Brain could get into products if we wanted to. But I'm not willing to, nor is the rest of the science uh, team, because we don't want to put things in a product without serious history of safety and efficacy. Um, and for instance, the heavy lifter in True Brain is called Paracetam or Oxyracetam. There's another version of it. And uh, Paracetam has an LD50, a toxicity um, level that is significantly higher than salt, meaning you have to eat way more paracetam to have a problem than you would for salt. So uh, many compounds are actually quite deadly. Like caffeine is a deadly compound. If you have a little bit of it in pure form, you can die. It's very easy to overdose on caffeine by itself. Paracetam, I could literally pour pounds of paracetam down your throat and you wouldn't uh, die. You wouldn't probably have any negative effects except being a little bit uncomfortable and probably irritable with that much focus, that much choline going on. Um, but beyond that, you're not going to get into trouble by taking you know, paracetam. And that is sort of true of our approach overall in True Brain. The, the ingredients, the magnesium, tyrosine, carnitine, paracetam, acetylcholine, uh, theanine, these things are all incredibly well tolerated. But what makes it so sort of special is the combination. Um, it's, the, it's, the, it's the mix of these things we put together in the right amounts, and we aren't underdosing it the way a lot of commercial products do, and we aren't making you, you know, sift through bags of powder to try your nootropics either. So we're sort of trying to remove a lot of the guesswork and confusion and risk for people while making a product that is, you know, a lot more convenient. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast this week. Uh, where can people find you? And what else do you have that you're working on right now? Before we started, you, you said that you sure. were working on a sp specific initiative. So where can people find you? And yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, we just launched a new um, brain training center, neurofeedback and mindfulness center in uh, Los Angeles in part of LA called Culver City. It's called Peak Brain, Peak Brain Los Angeles or peakbrainla.com. Uh, and so folks can check me out there if they're curious about brain training um, or they can hit me up on Twitter at Andrew Hill PhD, and that's usually the clearinghouse for all my contacts. So, um, what I love if people want to hop on Twitter, um, Andrew Hill PhD, and tell me, you know, your own brain stories or concerns or challenges. 
Brains are incredibly variable. You put 10 people in a room, you have 11 different stories. And uh, you know, I always love hearing about people's unique uh, experiences, challenges, happiness, uh, you know, sadness, whatever it is about their own brain. So I'd love if your listeners have their own brain questions to start, you know, throwing some at me on Twitter. I'll try to field it and give some, uh, give some advice. That's awesome. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast this week. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Mike. That was one of the best conversations I've had in a long time on the podcast in terms of both length and depth. Because this one went on longer than I was expecting, and it just, I wanted to keep going. I wanted to ask him more and more. And if you want to hear everything, then uh, the whole podcast, which has added quite a bit more to it, um, you go to uh, pro- the Patreon page, patreon.com slash productivityist, and you get that. You'll get the exclusive Patreon edition, which includes the entire discussions, the whole episodes, every every interview I do, as well as four additional episodes per week, as well as other perks and so on and so forth. So if you head over to patreon.com slash productivityist, you can check that out and support the show and get some cool stuff as well. And, and heading into this time of year, having more in your arsenal to wrap up the year strong and then ramp up. Uh, the calendar year ahead is never a bad thing. So thanks to Dr. Hill for joining me this week on the show. Of course, you can check out the show notes and uh, find all the links and and things we discussed there. Uh, I want to thank all of you for listening this week. And until next time, this is Mike Vardy, the founder of Productivityist and host of the Productivityist podcast, reminding you to stop guessing and start going. Have a great week. 